welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. As Josh was saying, over the next uh, six weeks, we're going to be in a series on uh, the doctrine of God. We're going to look at who God is and what he's like. And one thing to think about from the beginning here is that we can only know God if he reveals himself to us, right? God is not a concept, he's not an idea, he's a person. And for us to really know him, we have to hear from him who he is, right? We don't just imagine what he's like in our heads, right? I think that's really common in our culture, right? People say things like, the kind of God I'd like to believe in is like this, or I could never believe in a God like that. The idea is that somehow we imagine in our heads what God is like. But guys, that's not the way to know any person, right? In any relationship, you don't just imagine in your heads what that person is like and then impose that on them. You know, you don't say things like, well, the kind of Steve I like to believe in. Or I would never believe in a Dave like that. You don't say those things, right? Because they're real persons and they have real things about them. No, you listen to them and you believe what they say about themselves and that's how you come to know them. It's the same with God. We need to listen to what he says about himself so that we can truly come to know him. We need to believe what he says, right? Amen? That makes sense? And he has revealed who he is in this book. Now, one thing to think about, too, when we think about knowing God, the theologians call him uh, incomprehensible. Incomprehensible is the idea that we can never take in everything that God is. We can never know him exhaustively. We never know him and then we go, oh, I saw him, I know him, and I can move on and learn about something else, right? We can never know God as God knows himself. Have you ever thought about it that way? God knows himself exhaustively. We can never know him exhaustively like that, right? For us to try and know God exhaustively would be like to try to scoop up Lake Tahoe with a shot glass, right? You guys realize that Lake Tahoe has, check this out, internet, right? 37 trillion gallons in it. So this seems weird, but it was on a government website, so we have to believe it. But if you take Lake Tahoe, the water in Lake Tahoe is enough to cover the whole state of California 14 inches thick. Is that right, Rick? Where's Rick? Water district guy, where is he? Anyway, that's insane, right? It's an insane amount of water. So for us to try to comprehend God, and this is just a small image of that, right? Because God is infinite. He's not finite at all, but for us to try and comprehend God with our finite minds is for us to like try to take a shot glass and, and scoop up Lake Tahoe. We can only know God partially, but as Josh mentioned earlier, that partial knowledge is real knowledge. We shouldn't say because he's incomprehensible and that we can't know him fully that we can't know him at all. Some people do that. Well, you can't really know God, you know. It's a really common thing in our culture that people kind of excuse themselves from knowing God because they're like, he can't be known. Know that little knowledge that we have of God that we can gain from Scripture is true knowledge. It's true understanding. Just like that little scoop of Lake Tahoe, that is actual water. It is a real true sample of what the lake is like. And so what's amazing about God, too, is that 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 small bit of what we can know of him in Scripture, that true sampling of who he is, the rest of him will never be at odds with that true sampling from Scripture. There's a theological term for this called the simplicity of God, that any true sample you have of God from Scripture will be just like all the rest we can't know. So there'll never be behind God some, some God that's different than who you know in Scripture and who you know in the person of Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting? 
He's incomprehensible, but he's knowable. And the way he's revealed himself most clearly and most intimately is in the persons of the Trinity. Now, when I say that, you're like, he revealed himself most clearly in the persons of the Trinity. I have a hard time with the Trinity. Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to look at the doctrine of the Trinity. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? The doctrine of the Trinity is the truth that there is just one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Why do we believe in the doctrine of Trinity? We believe in the doctrine of Trinity because the Bible teaches three things that only the Trinity can make sense of. Okay? The Bible teaches that there's just one God, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are distinct persons, and that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all fully God. Okay? If the Bible teaches those three things, which it does, then the doctrine of the Trinity is the only way to make sense of it. The doctrine of the Trinity isn't just something people made up for, for no reason. The doctrine of the Trinity is try to make sense of those three points of data from Scripture. So this morning, I want to just show you that the doctrine of the Trinity is true and that it's better. It's better than any conception we could have of God, any of the false conceptions we have. And then, over the next few weeks, we want to look at each person individually. We want to look at the Father, we want to look at the Son, and look at the Spirit. So first, there's only one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Okay, this is foundational to Scripture. Whatever we believe about God, we have to believe there's one God. This is foundational. And this was in contrast, right, to their neighbors. Think about Israel, and you think about what their neighbors believed about God. They believed in multiple gods, right? They believed in multiple gods that were limited, right? They might have been limited to a geographic area, or they were limited to a particular force of nature. Maybe they were God of rain, or they were God of some particular piece of land. Um, you guys remember in 1 Kings 20, the Syrians, when they were developing their battle strategy, they were relying on bad theology. They thought that the God of the Bible was just the God of the hills and not the plains. So they formed their military strategy on this, and that didn't turn out well, right? Our God, in contrast, the God of Israel claims to be the only God the one creator and savior and judge of the world. Amen? And he's pretty emphatic about it. Have you noticed? He's pretty emphatic about it. So Isaiah 43.10 says this. This is God speaking. That you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. He's very emphatic in Isaiah. In Isaiah 46.9, he says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Isn't that great? That's called monotheism, one God, and it's awesome, okay? Monotheism is amazing. It turns out polytheism is a total nightmare, okay? Monotheism is amazing. Why do I say that? Well, think about it. If you lived in a world with multiple gods, how would you ever know if you're right with them, right? Because certainly they want different things, right? And they do. How would you know if you're ever right with the gods? How would you ever know how to please them? Think about Acts 17. You guys remember when Paul goes to Athens and they had set up the altar to the unknown God. And the reason for that was they were worried that some God would show up and be like, hey, why aren't you worshiping me? And they're like, oh, we had an altar for you. We didn't know your name. So we just put the altar to the unknown God here. Well, we really are worshiping you, right? There's this anxiety in polytheism of how do I please? Who do I appease? What if everybody wants something different from me? That's the anxiety of polytheism. And actually, some of you guys, those are your people pleasers, know exactly what it's like to live with multiple gods, right? The people pleaser is in the same position. Who do I appease? What if everyone wants something different of me? And they do, right? 
What a blessing, guys, to be monotheists. What a blessing to know the one true God. You guys don't know how blessed you are. You know the one true God, and you know the way to be right with him through Jesus Christ. If you're trusting in Christ, you are right with the only judge that matters. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. And you're learning now how to please him alone. That's the solution to people pleasing, right? Is that we learn to please God alone. So there's only one true God. And then secondly, the Bible teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct persons. Okay, now in the Old Testament, there's some hints of his plurality. We've seen those, right? As you read through the Old Testament, you get a sense that within the one true God, there's some sort of plurality. You know, God speaks like, you know, let us make man in our image. Or in Isaiah, it says, who shall we send for us? And you're like, who's the us, you know? There's little hints throughout the Old Testament that there's a plurality within God. But as you get into the New Testament, they're named, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what we mean by persons is that each one of the persons of the Trinity is able to have a true personal relationship with one another. So it means to be a person. A person in the sense that they have an ability to have a true, genuine, personal relationship with each other. So when we think about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, these aren't modes in which God reveals himself, right? Some people have conceived of, of God as like as one person, but he wears kind of different masks, right? He's like one actor wearing different masks. So it's, it's called modalism. That's an ancient heresy. It still happens today. Some of you guys do it. I've done it. But the idea that God is just one person and he just appears as Father, Son, and Spirit, like he wears masks. And you're a modalist if you use examples like, well, it's easy. God is like one man who's a husband, an uncle, and a father. That's actually modalism, okay? And we're not going to burn you at the stake for that. We've all been accidental heretics, haven't we? The Trinity's hard, right? We've all done it accidentally, and we're a mobile church. We don't have the equipment to be doing that, burning people at the stake, you know? Is it too soon? That's too soon. Okay. But that's modalism. Another example of modalism would be, you know, that God is like water. He's liquid. He can be solid. He can be gas. That's modalism, right? Because that's the same water. And so sometimes the scripture speaks of the different persons, and you can tell who's who. Like, you know, sometimes you're reading in a passage, real easy one would be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We see the word God there and we go, well, who specifically is that? It's the father, right? Because he gave his son. That one's easy. Uh, a lot of passages you can kind of tell who the person of the Trinity is. And it's helpful, so helpful, when you start realizing that you want to, as much as you can, understand which person of the Trinity the, the scripture is speaking of in this passage. And it's also important, too, guys, to... Um, to try to not confuse the persons of the Trinity. We've all done this, right? So you're praying, and you're like, Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for dying on the cross. And it's like, wait, 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 no, no, no. He didn't die on the cross. It's actually another heresy. So easy to be heretic, isn't it? But that would be another heresy, right? So we want as much as possible to, to understand what do the different persons of the Trinity do? What is their role in redemption? And to pray according to that. Because really, guys... God has given us this ability to know him as Trinity, as the best and most intimate way to know him. Because if you're just going to have the attributes of God, which is a great way to know God, you're not going to have that personal sense of God operating with us in redemption and the way he loves us. So modalism is the idea that God is like one actor that puts on different masks, right? Father, Son, and Spirit to appear. 
And the problem with that is that sometimes in Scripture, all three persons appear. You know, what do you do with that? If, if God's one actor wearing different masks, but all three persons of the Trinity show up somewhere, it becomes clear that these are three persons. And one of the places that happens is in Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3.16 says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And so what you have in this passage, and we good, we have it up here, is you have an interaction between the three persons. Do you see it? So you have Jesus, he's in the water. The Spirit is descending down upon Jesus as a dove. And then the Father's speaking from heaven. He's saying, this is my beloved Son. If modalism was true, that there was just one person just appearing as everyone, this would be very confusing, wouldn't it? Right? Because this isn't Jesus throwing his voice like a ventriloquist to sound like he's speaking from heaven, talking about how much he's pleased with himself. That's not what's going on here, right? It's beautiful what's going on here. You have all three persons of the Trinity. The, the father is pronouncing his deep pleasure in his son. And then the spirit is being sent down to Jesus as a gift of the father's love to him. But he's actually a person of the Trinity. Isn't that amazing? It's so amazing. So there's clearly a relationship here. There's clearly a relationship within the Trinity of the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit communicating and planning and loving one another. And uh, we see a lot of these kind of interactions in the New Testament. Can you guys think of any places where you see the persons of the Trinity interacting? The New Testament? Yeah, I guess so many. So you have the Jesus praying to the Father, right? In Hebrews, it even says that the Spirit actually assisted Jesus to offer himself. You have all the times Jesus prayed. You have Jesus talking about another comforter that he's going to send when he talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person like himself that he's going to send to be another comforter. And you think about just all these times Jesus prays, like if it isn't three persons, then who is Jesus praying to? He's praying to his father, right? And one of the most intimate prayers is in John 17. It's so beautiful. Listen to this. So this is Jesus, the son praying to God the Father, and just listen to what he reveals about their relationship. John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Isn't that amazing? So he's, when he's praying, he's praying to the Father, and he's saying, you know, glorify me with the glory that we had before. He's talking about their life before, their life before creation and, and the relationship they had. And if you drop down to verse 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also, speaking of us, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's deep, right? You're thinking about this relationship that the Father and the Son had even before creation, a relationship of love and glory and enjoyment. Isn't that awesome? It's such a great thing to think about. Guys, the Trinity is way better than a single person God. Because a single person God can't say that. A single person God can't be love within his very essence. You guys realize that? He can't be love in his very essence because a single person God, say a God like people conceive of Allah, a God like that can't be love in his own essence because before creation he would not have had anyone to love. And a God like that would be dependent on creating humans to have somebody to love. 
you think about a single person God and you think about that God before creation and you think, poor God, so lonely, right? So sad, so in the dark. Isn't it a good thing he has us? That's never the way to think about God, by the way, <laughs> right? God is full and he doesn't need his creation. He loves us, but doesn't need us. And so what you have in, in the Trinity is you have God existing as three persons in a relationship of love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from eternity past, forever. There was never a time when God was lonely, right? God was always enjoying his own presence within the persons of the Trinity. Isn't that amazing? Uh, he was, he's love in his essence. That can't be said of a God like Allah, right? Allah can't be love and relationship in his very being, right? You need a creation for that. And you can see how it plays out in the religion, right? Because it's not a relationship with God of love, is it? It's a relationship of submission. It's a relationship of rules. It's not a, it's not a relationship of love and, and um, intimacy with God. Because God's not that kind of God in that conception, right? But our God is a God of love and relationship. And I want you to think about that for a second. Your view of God matters. Your view of what kind of God there is matters. When you think of the, the way all is con conceived and how it plays out in that religion, think about your own life. Think about the way you think about God and think about how maybe that's played out in the way you relate to him, right? We're not going to be real drawn in to, to, to love and affection, thinking we have a warm relationship with a God like Allah. But if you think about God as Trinity, and you think about the persons of the Trinity loving and enjoying each other from all eternity and then welcoming you into that, that's something you're going to want. That's something you're going to draw near to. That's something when you go to pray, you're going to feel the warmth of God. The USC professor, he was a philosophy professor, Dallas Willard. I've mentioned this before, but I love this quote. So somebody asked the USC philosophy professor, Dallas Willard, they asked him, what was God doing before creation? And I love his answer. He was enjoying themselves. Isn't that awesome? It's terrible English, but it's like really accurate. What was God doing before creation? He was enjoying themselves. So the act of creation was not God needing somebody to love. It was the overflow of love and joy which the persons of the Trinity have had for all time. Spilling over that kind of others-orientedness they've always had. The Father has always poured himself out to the Son, and the Son has always poured himself out to the Father, and the Spirit has always poured himself out to both in love. And in creation, what they're doing is they're sharing that love and joy and relationship with us. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you think about the kind of world we have, and it's a world full of personalities, right? You guys are real personalities, that's for sure. We have like different personalities and things like that. And if, if we believed in a world that didn't have a God and was just materialistic, what explains that? What explains our desire for love? What explains our desire to relate to each other? What explains personalities? How does that come from just dead matter and time and chance? But if you believe in the doctrine of Trinity and believe in God, it makes total sense that the Trinity means that ultimate reality is about love. That when you look at this world, it's a stage created by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit so that we could know them and enjoy their love that they've always had. This is an amazing view of reality, isn't it? And it's true. Isn't that great? It's better and true. So good. Okay. You know, there's another thing to think about with, this, with the Trinity and creation is that ancient creation stories, most of them, a lot of them, 
showed that the way that the world came to be was by violent competition between the gods, right? So the gods had a big war, they chopped up some snake, and the blood made the ocean, and blah, 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 right? So most ancient, you know, creation stories were that the world was made through a violent war between the gods. Modern creation myths are that we're here just because of violent war between the species. But the Bible teaches we're here because of the love of the persons of the Trinity. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing how the ancient creation myths and the modern creation myths are similar. War between the gods, war between the species. But what we have in scripture is that you're here because of the overflow of the love of the Trinity. And I want to ask you this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, which story makes more sense out of your desire for love? And which story gives you a better basis for compassion and care for other people? It's the biblical creation story, right? It's the Trinity. It's the overflow of their love for us. And, you know, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you still value those things. And the reason why you value love and compassion and relationship and others-orientedness and all that is because you live in a world formed by Trinitarian love. That's the reason you want it. And, uh, and so, okay, so there's one God. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are distinct persons in a relationship of love. And all the persons are fully God. This is interesting. So you think about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are fully God. No one's ever questioned the deity of the Father. It's kind of by definition, right? But some have questioned the deity of the Son and the Spirit. You'll, you'll meet people out there that believe that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, are either like lesser gods or are created beings. Um, but the Bible clearly teaches that both are fully God. So the Bible teaches that the Son is God. John 1.1. 1, 1. This is so beautiful. John 1.1 1, 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you drop down to verse 14. Who is this Word? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it beautiful that verse 1, the economy of words there? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and others will say that verse 1 should be translated a God. So They'll say, in the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. But think back to Isaiah 60, 46. Does it make sense that we could translate that a God? He said in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. <laughs> okay, So we can't do other gods. Okay, It's pretty much ruled out. And remember Isaiah 43, if we're, people often thought, well, Jesus is a created being, maybe a divine being. But remember Isaiah 43 said that there's no God making going on. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. That pretty much covers it, right? You're not going to have any gods made, you're, divine beings, whatever that would mean. It's ruled out. There was an ancient heresy, it's called Arianism, and it taught that the Son was a created being. But of course, from these scriptures, we can see that God, that the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit's story is different. A lot of people in, in church history have thought not just that the Spirit isn't God, but the Spirit isn't even a person. Perhaps you guys have even made that mistake before. It's easy to do. People tend to depersonalize the Spirit, right? So you understand how the Father is, is, is a person. And they understand how the, the son's person, but the spirit, probably because of his name or something, it, it becomes like unclear. They think of him as a force, call him an it. I think we've all pretty much done that, right? But the spirit is a person and he is very God. He's fully God. 
passage to go to for that, one of them would be Acts 5, verse 3. This is when Ananias had lied about a real estate sale and what he gave. And it says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a portion of the land? And then if you drop down to the end in verse 4, it says, you have not lied to man, but to God. So who did Ananias lie to? Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. Then we drop down a little bit later, lied to God. And in, in this passage, we can see he's a person he can be lied to. In other passages, we can see he can be grieved and other things about him. So we know he's a person. And this passage says really clearly that he is God. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are fully God. You're like, okay, I got that. So there's three gods. No, there's not three gods. Remember the first point, there's one God, right? These aren't three gods. The Mormons believe in three gods, at least probably four gods, because you've got Heavenly Father, the Son, the Spirit, and then you've got the Heavenly Mother, who is the Heavenly Father's wife from the planet they were on before when they were humans. It's a whole other deal. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit aren't three gods. They're one God. Why do we say they're one God? They're one God because they're one essence, one being. Okay? You're like, okay, this is starting to get difficult. And so you're like, okay, so three parts of God then. No, not three parts of God. God doesn't have parts. This is where you get in trouble with your three-leaf clover, right? Also heresy. I don't think St. Patrick's at fault on that one. The egg is a problem because it's three parts. God doesn't have parts. And so this is mind-blowing, and this is where it'll hurt, is that each person of the Trinity is fully God, not a third of God, not part of God. When you interact with the Holy Spirit, you're interacting with all of God. And you're like, oh, but I thought there were three persons. There are, and one God. Does this hurt? Anyone in pain? Anyone like feel stretched? You should feel stretched, okay? If you're saying like, no, it's not mysterious at all to me, I'll be like, well, how do you think of it? And then you're going to straight up give me heresy, okay? <laughs> like for sure, okay? So this is, you're like, I got it. It's like, ooh, watch out, okay? It's good you live now. But it's a mystery, right, guys? And, and the cool thing is, it's like mystery is good. Okay, there's two ways to go wrong on mystery. One is like everything's a mystery. And it's like, dude, you read your Bible. A lot of this stuff is not a mystery. Right. But on the other side, there's the people that don't want to acknowledge mystery because it feels like giving up, doesn't it? It feels like the white flag of surrender. But when we're thinking about God, we're going to encounter mystery. Amen. And if we didn't, that's super suspicious, either on your part or whatever you're hearing. And so while we don't want to throw the, the flag of mystery up too soon, there will be times when you come to a place where Scripture doesn't speak more or you don't have more that you can figure out and you have tensions in Scripture. And the, and, and the Trinity is one of those places. We should, we should want to know God as much as we possibly can, right? We shouldn't give up too soon. I mean, just like you want to know your, your husband or your wife or a close friend as well as you possibly can. You should want to know God as well as you possibly can. So don't use mystery as like, you know, you're just lazy, Okay. You're like, you know, what is your wife like? You know, what's her favorite flower? It's like, oh, it's a mystery. It's like, you're lazy, dude. Like, stop it, you know? Write it down. I just found out recently. So it might have changed. I don't know. But we don't want to throw the white flag of mystery up too soon, but we also want to acknowledge that we're going to bump into mystery. Like, as we investigate who God is, we're going to come to a spot where we're just going to hit a wall. You know, we're going to go, okay, that's mysterious, and I should expect that because I'm dealing with God. It'd be like, 
I mean, the difference between me and God is like so orders of magnitude different. You know, I'm not surprised there'd be some mystery. And then who knows? You know, you might be reading the word later and you go like, oh, what I thought was a mystery wasn't a mystery. But then you're like here with the mystery, right? And that happens as you're kind of growing in your understanding of the Lord. But there will be mystery. Now, the Trinity is a mystery, but it is not a contradiction. Okay? It's a mystery, but it's not a contradiction. We aren't saying that there's one person and three persons. That would be a contradiction. We're not saying that there's one God and three gods. That would be a contradiction. What we're saying is that there's one God, eternally existent, three persons. Mystery, not contradiction. If it helps you, you could think of there's one what, God, and there's three who's. That might be a heresy too. You let me know afterwards. But it helps. You know, there's one what, there's God, and there's three who's, persons. So it's a mystery, but it's not a contradiction. And the place that we see this mystery the most beautifully, it won't surprise you, is in their love for us in the gospel. Because I think the more we kind of bang our heads against, like, how do we understand this? We start to get a lot of clarity when we think about the gospel. Because it turns out the gospel is something only a Trinitarian God can do. So not only did the three persons of the Trinity create you and create all of this so you could experience their love. But if you're a Christian today, get this. Josh alluded to it earlier. Before he created the world, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreed together on a plan to save you through Jesus Christ. Now, you may be a planner, but God, God knew that you would need a Savior. And he prepared beforehand for it, before you even existed. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's a pactum salutis is the theological term for that. It's the, it's the covenant of redemption. It's in, it's in um, Ephesians 1. But at some point, so, so we have then the Father in the fullness of time sends the Son, you see the Trinity at work in redemption. The Father sends the Son. The Son becomes a man. He dies for our sins. The Spirit actually, Hebrews says, empowered him to live a perfect life and actually empowered him to give his life as a substitute. And then at some point, maybe even this morning, the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see the love of God, which he's had before you from all eternity. And you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And notice something about this. Notice that the gospel can't function without the Trinity. The gospel is something only a triune God can do. You know, a solitary God can't take his own wrath upon himself, right? Just like at the baptism, you needed multiple actors, right? Multiple people at work, or not people, multiple persons at work in the baptism. You need the same thing at the, at the cross. A solitary God can't take his own wrath on the cross upon himself, and he can't place it on another, Yes, he took it upon himself in the persons of the Trinity. The Son took the wrath of God upon himself for us. And one thing you'll notice, guys, is that every religion that denies the Trinity will eventually deny the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Because you think like, oh, well, what about like a non-Trinitarian, gospel-believing church? Would that be a problem? They don't exist. And the reason why they don't exist is if you deny the Trinity, you'll eventually deny the gospel because the gospel is something that only a Trinitarian God can do. Isn't that amazing? It's so tied to who he is. And so in the gospel, we have all three persons of the Trinity surrounding us in their love. Ephesians 2.18 says this, For through him, Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Isn't that beautiful? When you draw near to God, in communion, when you draw near to God in prayer, when you, when you seek his face, wh- who are you seeing? You're seeing a father who's loved you 
from all eternity, a son who's all the righteousness you need to enter, and a spirit who is the bond between the father and the son, and who's actually God himself given to you as a gift. Isn't that amazing? In the gospel, we receive the spirit, God himself given to us as a gift. And the, the spirit then gives us a love for the father like the son has for the father. And he gives us a sense of the father's love like the son has always received. And he gives us his very love for people around us. Isn't that amazing? Because God's got you covered. He's got you surrounded, right? In the best possible way. All three persons drawing you in. So the Trinity is true. And it's better. We could have a little time afterwards. You could tell me what conception of God would be better than this. The crazy thing is, guys, we don't get to pick what God is like. This is how he actually is. And it turns out he's better than any other thing we could possibly imagine. Aren't we blessed? It's so incredible. So as we take the Lord's Supper and as we approach his table, we're approaching the table that the triune God has set before us, prepared for us. And let's, guys, just receive the warm welcome of God. Amen? That's the thing you get when you really think about the doctrine of the Trinity is you think about God's grace and that he's provided everything you need to approach him, everything you need to, to follow him, everything you need to know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself in this way. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would just help us in this series as we look at who you are very directly and Try to understand what you've revealed about yourself in the scripture. We just pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand. And even more importantly, hearts that are open and desiring you. Lord, you didn't need us. You still don't need us. But you love us and you desire us and you want us. And we have no idea why. But we thank you. We thank you for being a God of grace, for being a God of love, for being a God that's so focused on others, Lord, that you have had that focus within the persons of the Trinity from all eternity and that you decided to shower that love and enjoyment on us. Us who have sinned against you, us who have rebelled against you, us who have not wanted you, and yet you keep pursuing us in love. We're just so thankful. and We just pray, Lord, give us hearts to surrender. Give us hearts that want to just stop, turn around, and receive you. And we know, Lord, that when we do, we are going to find you to be the father and the prodigal son with your arms open wide running to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.